Welcome to WP Tonic episode 142. And today we're discussing marketing for nonprofits. Before we get into the main topic, I'm going to let the panel introduce themselves. Sally, who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is Sally Getch, uh, and uh, lately I don't do very much. Uh, but most most of the time, I uh, build WordPress websites for small businesses and nonprofits, uh, and I'm also the organizer of the East Bay WordPress Meetup in Oakland, California. Morton, present yourself. I am uh, Morton. I'm a senior staff instructor at Lin- LinkedIn Learning at Lynda.com, and uh, I build interesting things. Right now I'm working on a, an enormous gulp process for simplifying w- WordPress theme development in preparation for HTTP2 and things like that. Sounds very ambitious. What needs to be different about uh, theme development for HTTP2? Everything. Everything? Yes. Well, there's another wow. show topic, isn't there, John? Oh, yes. We've got two show topics there. We have to Absolutely. That is something that needs to be covered in detail. All right. Very good. Very good. Looking forward. Uh, Jonathan, who are you? Um, I'm the founder of this crazy show, WP Tonic. And we're also uh, a maintenance WordPress maintenance company and a support um, resource for designers, WordPress consultants, anybody looking for custom themes, custom plugins, we can help you out. Very good. And I'm John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design, and I help blue-collar businesses with their WordPress sites and specifically with local SEO and WooCommerce integration. Before we get into today's main topic, uh, marketing for nonprofits, we have a couple WordPress news stories. WordPress news story number one is, does Jetpack slow down a WordPress website from our friend Matt Medeiros. And uh, Sally, what was your take on this? Uh, Well, you know, I had read an article sort of like this a while ago. I can't remember um, uh, how how long that that came to roughly the same conclusion that, uh, you know, uh, if you are not uh, running every single freaking feature of Jetpack at once, which pretty much nobody would do, uh, the performance hit isn't necessarily... Uh, catastrophic. I, I think probably the thing you run into is situations where it gets installed and nobody goes in to check the settings and see, all right, what, what out of these things do I actually want? Uh, you know, there's, there's no point installing it if you don't want several of the things that it does. Uh, but often the things that you want and the things that are enabled by default are, are not necessarily going to be the same. Most definitely. Morton, uh, what's your dealings with Jetpack? Yeah, I think pretty much the same. Like I've also seen tons of, this is a conversation that keeps surfacing every once in a while where someone installs Jetpack and they go, oh my God, everything got super slow. Or more normally, they go into a client website that's performing terribly and they disable Jetpack and then all of a sudden the performance just shoots up. Um, and I think it's exactly what Sally just said, that uh, if you, the plugin itself doesn't really do much. It's basically a container for other plugins. And if you start activating all those plugins, then every time you make the computer do more work, things slow down, obviously. Um, so it's an, 
I guess a more nuanced approach to a very uh, simplified conversation about something, because there's a lot of political issues with the jetpack as a whole, right? It's not like people have issues with the concept of jetpack and are trying to find reasons to say, you should just blanket stop using it for whatever reason, right? It's not hmm. secure. It's too, it slows your sight down, whatever. And, uh, it's rhetoric. Yes, I think so. I, and and I, before I uh, and Jonathan, definitely, I know that you have strong opinions on Jetpack too. But I, I'll just uh, just want to tell people in in case that they don't know, Jetpack is basically a bundle of plugins. It's uh, a free plugin in the WordPress repository. It's basically a bundle of a whole bunch of other smaller plugins. Uh, it's run by Automatic, which is the parent company of, of WordPress. And, and to connect it, you need a WordPress.com account. Um, Jonathan, you know, what was your take on the, Matt's article? Were you surprised by the findings? or Not really, no. Um, <clears throat> I, just, I, I just don't like the concept. You know, I think the concept makes perfect sense on WordPress.com. But um, as a concept for um, a self-hosted solution. I, I don't really follow the logic of the, con the fundamental concept of this Swiss Army knife that you're supposed to install. And I've, I, I follow um, Moulton's and Sally's logic. If you don't um, switch on everything, you'll probably be fine. Um... But um, that goes against the actual concept of the plugin, which is an all-embracing um, replacement, um, a one source where you know where it came from, where you should switch everything on. Um, and um, on the security level, that uh, you know that's a, I think a justifiable reason. The XSS problems the, with it. Um, um, it's, you know, it's not terrible, but I just don't like the idea of it. And we had that conversation as part of um, our roundtable about security, didn't we, um, John, uh, about some of the security problems with Jetpack, um, which are well known and I don't think have been that well dealt with. Um, that's my personal opinion. Um, I just don't like the concept of the whole idea, really. Well, well, definitely, that is something that we discussed in uh, episode 140 uh, when we were talking about security. The XML RPC uh, can definitely be problematic. That's something that Jetpack uses. Um, and what's bad about that is, you know, malicious people can go in there, combine a whole bunch of password and username combinations and use XML RPC to try and brute force your site, which is why you would want to have some sort of block on that, either through a security plugin or, or something else. Um, one thing I want to, one thing I guess that surprised me about this article is uh, as a test, Matt uh, took three other plugins that seemed to be popular in the repo, which is, uh, you know, photo gallery, add this for share buttons and Google analytics. And it seemed like the added uh, load, the added page speed uh, 
seem to be pretty much comparable to enabling like all the stuff in Jetpack. Mm-hmm. Uh, one one I, thing I, I, I guess most of that was add this. Yeah, I'm. I, I, I would, would. I'm not surprised by that at all. No, neither am I. Social buttons can be a, oh, a real offender. Yeah, they are. You know, if you want to, you got to be really and that. Yeah, I just don't like that either. I don't like anything, do I, folks? <laughs> Well, I, 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 I used uh, uh, the social sharing uh, plugin mm-hmm. on occasion because, you know, the idea is to be extremely lightweight there, and I've been pretty happy with that. It kind of depends on, you know, what you and or your, your client wants in the way of that sort of thing. Is uh. Here's a question, I guess, for the panel, and then we'll move on to the, the next news story. But what do you think about Jetpack since they redid their UI? Is it easier or harder to find out what's actually active or deactivated? I haven't paid that much attention to the new UI because usually once I've set it up, I just kind of ignore it. Uh, But uh, I think the last time they redid their UI, it was a little, it was actually a little harder to find stuff. So if if they've improved that, I'm uh, in favor of it. I don't know because we don't install it. I don't want anything. (laughs) So, so. I, I actually use it like a, a quite a bit, but I'll, I'll usually block like uh, the XML RPC. Uh, Morton, your thoughts on on the current version of the the user interface? Now that you're saying it, I'm like, did they change it again since last time I looked at no. it? It was no. pretty recently. It's... They sent me about like a dozen emails trying to get me to you know applaud their new UI, and I just couldn't be arsed. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Uh, give me one second. I'm just going to check that I'm not insane before I, I, I come I apologize to the Jetpack uh, team. You're, you, look, you're such, I've met you numerous times at WordCamps, and you're such nice people. And I'm so, I feel so, such a horrible person saying such things. It's not, you're great. And if people want to use it, it's just at the present moment, it's not my cup of tea. Yeah. I think, you know, maybe one of the, one of the challenges that Jetpack faces is that it started out as a very, very simple thing. If when you first installed Jetpack, if you started from the very beginning, you only had three functions. And then they started adding things on and adding things on. And in that process, they had to iterate on their design backwards. So originally, there was no plan of you know, making this easy to understand in terms of what is activated and what is not. And then all of a sudden, when they had a million features, they had to change it. So last time I went into Jetpack, which uh, admittedly is a couple of months ago, when you are on the front page, you see a list of most popular plugins uh, or, or something like that. And then there's like a little icon that tells you whether or not they're activated. And then to get into the settings, you have to click on it and then do something else to get into the settings. So it's um, uh, an attempt at making the user interface very simple, but it's not necessarily telling people exactly what's going on in a clear and concise way. Um, I think to what Matt's talking about in this article, uh, the the issue with Jetpack is that what it's trying to do is be a one-stop shop for all the things you would need if you're just setting up a basic website, right? So it's if, right. You, if you think about it as a whole, it's targeting the, pe- the people who use WordPress who don't want to do any advanced development, don't do any advanced setup, they just want to get things to work properly. These are the same people that are likely to activate everything because they don't know what it is, and they're like, well, this sounds like something I should be using, in which case it slows down the site. Now, um, 
if you're going to do a true comparison between Jetpack and something else, you have to do a true comparison between the Jetpack feature as output and the something else feature as output. So for instance, uh, Sally was mentioning that the reason why the other plugins probably slowed down is because they were using Adlist. So the Jetpack social sharing feature is just a container that shows social links. Adlist is an entire separate service that runs analytics and adds additional features to your site. Now, the thing with Adlist is, if you're using Adlist simply for social media buttons, you're not actually using Adlist's functionality. You're, 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 you're better off using something else. Because Adlist, the whole point of that is you get all these other things like related external articles and massive analytic systems and pop-ins. And, and the social media buttons are almost like a side note to all that. Um, and yeah, so, so yes, it's true that on the face of it, they look like they're serving up the same thing. And I think for the average user, you would not know the difference. Uh, but if you want to do a true comparison of Jetpack and uh, a combination of the plugins, you have to find well-coded, uh, properly defined uh, plugins that only do the same thing. Now, but that's an that's uh, an inauthentic comparison for if you're trying to emulate a real user experience, because the real user will not code lint a plugin before they install it. They will simply go, that looks popular, click, right? So it's a very, it's a multifaceted discussion, right? And that, I, I think that's why this very simplified Jetpack is evil, throw it away kind of uh, uh, messaging goes out because people don't want to get into the weeds of this. They just want to say, don't do it, right? Yeah, um, I, I, think, I think everything you just said, that's why I didn't really want to comment too much on the article because I love Matt. And he's been on the show, and we think we treat him as a friend of the show. He's been very supportive. I don't think it was one of his greatest articles in truth um, because of the reasons you just outlined, Morton. So um, add this. Well, I'd be, I would warn people, you know, learn about the plugin before you install it because we've had clients, and it can be a bit difficult to remove it completely from your site after you've installed it it's one of these that buries deep really deep but um it was back to um our interview with robert the security guy john you know um the issue is that like around robert was talking about security plugins and i've i've been studying it a bit more and thinking a bit more about it is you know in the security you have these swiss army knife plugins and we we install a couple on client sites depending on on which one we think is most suitable and they are swiss army knives of security and like robert said he wasn't a big fan of them was he john he said you're better off looking at individual plugins that do um the job that you're looking for really well rather than these what he called swiss army knife of security plugins didn't he john and i'm reassessing our position on that based on what robert said to me on the show so but i think jetpack's the same thing um it's just i just don't um i i think you're bet, better off looking for an individual solution that was designed for that particular problem then are all embracing solution developed by jetpack that's really fundamentally my position 
Well, I, I think that's right, as long as you know enough to, to look for the right things. Mm-hmm. You know, my understanding of Jetpack was that it was basically created essentially to ease the transition between WordPress.com and self-hosted WordPress. Yes. That, because people were like, so where are these things that, that I had on my WordPress.com site uh, and, and, you know, that I'm used to having? And how do I, you know, and how do I get them? And so, okay, well, we'll stick them all together in this in this jetpack thing. And and then, you know, when when you move from being on WordPress.com to being uh, to having a self hosted site, you you will have all those familiar things there. And uh, you know, I think for those people, it succeeds fairly well in doing that. Except that, you know, their self hosted site doesn't necessarily have all the you know additional improvements that are made on WordPress.com to ensure that their performance is good and all those other things. I totally, uh, I to- well, on a, what you've stated is yeah, I totally agree with you, Sally. But I just don't think the concept actually works. Um, that was the theory. But I think you are moving to a self-hosted environment. So I think if you're going to go down that, you really either need to spend a bit of time educating yourself or hiring somebody. And what Jetpack attempts to try and do, I just don't think it works, basically. Um, I think... Yeah, sorry. When Jetpack first came out, I remember saying that this looks like an attempt by Automatic to uh, commodify the self-hosted WordPress space and edge their way into it so that they could earn money off that space. And I remember originally saying it on Twitter or somewhere, and people were like, no, what are you talking about? That'll never happen. And then a couple of like a month or two later, there was there showed up new buttons in Jetpack that said like paid, but they weren't real yet. And now it's like you go to jetpack.com, no jetpack, yeah, jetpack.com, and they have uh, features and pricing. And here you can buy the, you can use the free version, or you can do the premium version for a hundred bucks a year, or you can do the professional version for three hundred dollars a year, right? And we were very closely butting up against the issue of. Uh, automatic as the uh, automatic as a contributor to WordPress and automatic as a an actual com- like commercial enterprise and throwing its weight around to try to get people to use its service. Right? I mean, uh, a Kismet is now part of Jetpack, and a Kismet is a paid service, and a Kismet ships as a standard part of WordPress. Like, there are all these very, very, very complicated issues around this. Uh, that have nothing to do with performance and everything to do with who runs the world. Right? I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think there is a bit of a, uh, a, a dark UI pattern. There is definitely a dark pattern um, with Jetpack. I, one thing that I've noticed, like just installing it um, on sites this month is compared to like a couple of months ago is it's very, very hard to select that free uh, option they by default like put you in the 99 per year and Mm -hmm. you have to really like work like when you're uh, registering a new account to get it to the free option so same thing with the kismet it starts with like here's your you know donation and you know you if you can slide it down to free but like pretty much the default is like you know paid for both jetpack and a kismet so yeah that's, it's that's how corporations 
yeah, it's it's complicated, but definitely they're um, yeah. Don't make no mistake; they're they're in it to make some money too. So yeah, I, I think it's fine. Shall we go on to the next story, John? Yeah, Lou, we got a few minutes for this one. Uh, so the uh, final WordPress news story for this week is uh, Chris Lemma on Joe Casabona's uh, podcast, How I Built It, talking about how he's building beyondgood.com. Uh, did anybody listen to this episode? Afraid not. I have not. <laughs> okay. Jonathan, did, did you listen to this episode? I read the article. Okay. Okay, anyway, well, anyway, I just listened to it like an hour ago. Um, to, to basically, I did, and, and maybe we'll talk about like some of the concepts here. You know, basically, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's built on Genesis. It's using uh, WooCommerce um, with memberships by SkyVerge. Shout out Becca Rice, episode 135. Um, but w- one of the things that he was saying in there, is a lot of people try and launch a full-blown site. And this site really like rolled out in stages. At, at first, it was just trying to get the proper amount of content in there and seeing the kind of feedback and the questions that people were asking and then building out, seeing if there was an audience for this, leaders, this site about leadership. And then from there, building out the things like the membership, the, you know, the store and things like that. And I just wanted to ask the panel, when it, when it comes to like building websites in general, a lot of people just like try and build the, the full thing. And we've talked about this before, but is there like some wisdom in, in trying to gauge like what the audience is? Is there an audience for this? And then building out the other parts. Sally. Uh, <clears throat> I think that it makes a lot of sense if, if you can do it. And it, I mean, you know, it kind of depends on the scale of the site that you're planning if what you're is fairly simple to begin with, and then you may not need to do that. But, um, you know, you can look at the uh, uh, situation that Carrie Dills had with her uh, membership site, where it, it just, like, you know, not only did it not gain the sort of traction for uh, people to pay for it, but, you know, people were really just not even using that, and, and she switched everything over into a, into a Slack channel, which seems to be getting a little more activity. Um, so, uh, yeah, to the to the degree that you can actually uh, information about uh, what your users really want and are going to respond to, it, it makes sense to do that before you put a lot of time, effort, or, or money into creating it. Uh, you know, sometimes that's going to be easier to do than others, and, and every business is going to evolve and leave you in situations where you're, you know, getting rid of something that, that was useful in the beginning but doesn't make sense anymore. Um, Morton, I want to ask you, there's there's another concept that you talked about in here uh, when it comes to, you know, getting content. And uh, one thing that Chris Lama talked about in this episode was um, a lot of people – you know, uh, get bothered when people are asking like a whole bunch of questions, say you write an article and then they ask a whole bunch of questions in the comments. But he saw it as an opportunity to produce more content. Mm-hmm. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's, that's correct. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, I think uh, that when people want to launch a service like this, uh, a service that is knowledge-based. So you're basically trying to get people to sign up for a service where you share content and you share your ideas and you get a discussion going and everything. Um, what they often don't realize is you actually have to make all that content. 
And when I say all that content, I mean like an enormous amount of content. So um, we have a guideline that uh, my company uses when we build new websites for just any company that wants to have a blog presence is before the site launches, they need to have finished and ready to publish 50 articles, five zero. If they don't have 50 articles ready to go, we're not launching the site yet. And that's not like 50 short little blips. That's a <laughs> massive, properly written article with content. Um, and the reason why we say 50 is we say you backlog 20 so that there's already content on the site. Then you have 20 that are uh, lined up to be published over the next whatever many weeks so that you don't, in the launch process, have to keep writing content. And then you have 10 that are um, uh, time agnostic that sit as drafts in the system as a backup for when you, for whatever reason, can't write new articles. And every single time we do this, people freak out and they're like, 50 articles are even insane? And why would you want to write that? And I'm like, you want to publish content on the web and you think that you have something to say. Then you need to produce that content and show that you actually have something to say before you build the application to publish it. Otherwise, you'll just get a dead blog. Now, uh, the question that inevitably comes from that is, how do I know what to write about? 50 is a lot. And that's exactly what we do. We say, go out and look at what people are asking questions about or publish some very general article about something and somewhere else and then see what kind of questions come in and use those questions as starting points because more often than not, it, you'll have more traction if you narrow down the scope of your article to something very, very specific and address it in detail than go for some massive general article about something. For example, uh, I did a, <clears throat> an experiment a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, something like that, where um, I wrote an article about uh, responsive images in general, just responsive images on the web, blah, 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 right? And then I wrote an article about specifically how WordPress handles responsive images, uh, no, no, how you can control responsive images in your theme uh, and how handling them is different in featured images and regular content images. And it was a code breakdown. So it was insanely complex. Like the article is ridiculously complex and very detailed. And it's basically taking a pile of code and nitpicking at it line by line through the whole thing, right? So you'd think that the general article with just like this is response images and how they work would have more traction than the insanely nitpicky one. But comparably, the one that had a lot of detail about a very, very specific topic had far more traction. And I think that's what he's getting at, that if you get a lot of questions about specifics and you use each of those as a starting point for a new conversation, you're more likely to get targeted conversations because people who come into those conversations are looking for a solution to a problem. Um, and it also just allows you to spin off new ideas that you previously weren't aware of because usually people have far more general knowledge about topics than they are focally aware of and they need someone else to tell them, hey, you obviously know more about this. Can you tell me more? So I hate... I didn't watch the, or listen to the thing, but I'm sure he said something along these lines. Every time someone asks a question, write it down somewhere because that's mm -hmm. the starting point of a new article. That's a fairly standard method for approaching blogging in general. And it absolutely works specifically for business blogging because it's true. No, and, and I'm going to um, shout out like another article that I read. Uh, this was on the tactical 
socialmedia.org site or um, but it was saying basically that content is there to build a relationship. The content is not the end all. And and when people get, oh, like, oh, I'm getting all this email from this, uh, you know, comment. I don't want to reply to all this. I don't want to answer all these questions. It's like you're actually building authority for the person as the person who can answer this stuff. It's a good thing. It's not an annoyance. And exactly what you said about being specific on, on my own site, the, the, the articles that have the most comments and have nested like comment threads are the ones where I'm, I'm saying like, here's how you solve a very specific problem. Those are the ones that I get the most comments on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Jonathan, you, you read this article. Uh, what were your thoughts? Well, kind of very similar to what Morton said, but um, I think there's so many ways you can take what Morton says, so many paths that I'm a bit reluctant. Well, let's have a go, Jonathan. Uh, um, so um, it's a bit linked to, um, once again, you know, our chat with Heather, Heather Steele. You know, um, 50 articles is a lot of, lot of material, but on the other hand, I think what Morton is trying to point out is it kind of forces them to look at the reality of the situation um and it's kind of a slap in a way a kind of a cold bucket of water you know of the reality of how much content is probably and how much resource time energy is going to have to be put look at the amount of work i've put into w and with your help as well john over the past six months that we've had to put into wp tonic to um move it forward to some extent um and there's still a load of work to do um i think so i think people just don't realize how much um, they tend to concentrate on the look of the website, which is important, and the technology. But what is Morton is pointing out is the content is so important, and having some idea of the commitment. And um, for very small companies, they just cannot even consider that. But I think what Morton's talking about is com- medium-sized companies, which is what Heather still works with and larger organisations. And it's linked to our main topic, non-profits, quite considerably, I would say, if a non-profit wants to get traffic to the site. So it's going to probably be linked to that conversation. Um, yeah. Um, is that enough? Or should I- <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. That's, that's a great point. Uh, content is the most difficult part of the website. But... Um, you know well, that's, it's a, that's, just that's come to me. It's a bit like link, a bit like what Heather was saying is that the uh, agency, um, if it's got the resources, it should help the client with with that process, um, and it be ongoing, and that's where they continue making um, good money from the client um, and really helping the client, can't they? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's gauging to see, like, you know, do you have an audience, and then seeing what are they what are they asking, what are their needs, and then building everything, you know, content wise around that. Um, I think we're up against our break, so yeah. when we come back from the break, we'll be talking our main topic, which is marketing for nonprofits. See you after the break. 
Buying or selling a home in the greater Reno Tahoe area? I know the best CRS real estate broker, and that's Karen Conrad. And you can find her at KarenConrad.com or call directly at 775-527-7021. We're coming back from a break and we're talking our main topic in episode 142, which is marketing for nonprofits. And one thing that I want to ask um, the panel, you know, what is different about working with a nonprofit than it is working with a regular business. What sort of challenges do they face, Sally? Uh, uh, Well, uh, budget always seems to be an issue for the nonprofits that I work with. Uh, Although it's often an issue for, you know, for, for, for for-profit businesses uh, also, but um, I don't think, uh, for-profit businesses uh, run the risk of being, you know, criticized for spending money on stuff that isn't, you know, whatever their alleged purpose is. Um, uh, so there's that. And then there's the, probably the bigger issue is the number of nonprofits that depend uh, almost exclusively on volunteers. Uh, so that having somebody to put in charge of, say, creating 50 articles uh you know there isn't really anybody uh, anybody whose whose job that is uh and uh, trying to get that kind of uh, to get that kind of information out of people is is a bit challenging um and uh you know the websites themselves are not necessarily that different but it really de- it depends a lot on the institution i mean you know fundraising is probably going to be a a, a factor uh, although it, that depends a little bit on whether it's, you know, a, a, a C3 or a C6 or it's, you know, are, do they work by, you know, membership or by donations or by combinations of the above. Uh, and, uh, you know, there may be some, some additional uh, legal stuff involved. But uh, in a lot of cases, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're probably dealing with a committee and there's probably a committee of, of volunteers who cannot devote nearly as much time to it as, as it deserves. Uh, and that is not, doesn't just affect their website. It affects everything. No, that's an excellent point. And, and that actually like reminds me of experiences that I've had. And I want to ask this to Morton, um, you know, with, with nonprofits, there are a lot of volunteers and there's often like a, a board of members. How does that affect um, you know, decision making. How do how does it slow things down? How does it affect the whole process of of moving forward? It all depends on how well the nonprofit is managed. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, our community and the whole web community often has these very ridiculous conversations about how boss, like having a boss, is terrible and how managers are terrible people and blah, 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 blah. Well, if you work a lot with nonprofits um, and especially so-called grassroots nonprofits, you quickly realize that management structures are incredibly valuable to get stuff done. As long as you have managers that know what they're doing and are good people, people and uh, are able to communicate and prioritize and do all these things. Um, So in some nonprofits, having a long list of contributors and a lot of volunteers is a tremendous asset uh, because it basically provides an engine that produces content, that produces input, that uh, engages the community, and it's just amazing. 
in other nonprofits, having the same level of uh, uh, commitment from the volunteer base causes total chaos because they're not being managed properly or they're, they have uh, vastly disparate agendas uh, because there is no uh, cohesive approach to anything. So uh, to be honest, when, whenever, whenever we're approached by nonprofits, we often look at how, how well they work before we even consider talking to them because getting involved with a nonprofit that has a, a flat leadership structure and a lot of members is pretty much a guarantee for endless meetings of argumentation where nothing ever gets done and the end result of it is you might build a fantastic website but it'll never reach its potential and it'll never achieve what the, they want simply because they have a deeper rooted issue so it all depends. Definitely, definite. Uh, Jonathan, um, I, are you sh sharing a link here in chat um, that, that you want to uh, discuss here? Yeah, it's from the Stanford Social Innovation Review. And I think it kind of, I'll just read the first paragraph because it's a little bit boring if you read something out on a podcast. But it says, since 1970, more than... 200,000 non-profits have been opened in the US but only 144 of them have reached 50 million in annual revenue that's not surprising most members of these elite groups get big get big by doing two things they raise the bulk of their money from a single type of funder such a corporation or government and not as conventional wisdom would recommend by going after diverse sources of funding just as important these non-profits create professional organizations that were tailored to the needs of the primary funding resources and i think that's very linked to just what walton's just said isn't it Yep, most definitely. Uh, do you do you have uh, any experiences with nonprofits? Um, I think I think there's nonprofits and there's nonprofits. There's um, that's why I read out that thing because I noticed in Nevada, which is the bulk of my experience, um, is that they're quasar state and also federally, a federal government funded. Um, non-profit entities mm -hmm. which also seek other forms of funding from the general public and they tend um, it's hard as a as a free as as a, a small agency to actually get in the door of one of those clients because they they tend to have very um, large quite considerable budgets and um, they have a lot of structure. Um, they're more like dealing with state government in a way. Um, and normally you can only deal as a, either through rec reputation or um, you've been through referral, direct referral. Um, and then you've got the bulk of these uh, other... Um, non-profits that I've dealt with a few and they, they, they can be totally chaotic in um, what they're trying to achieve um, so in, it, it's really difficult it just it really depends but um, you 
can become very negative about helping such organisations, but you really need um, a strong agreement of what you're going to be doing, what you're not uh, going to be doing. Um, and they normally got a ridiculously long list which they can never achieve because, like what Morton says, is volunteered base, and it's a bit like herding cats in some extent. So I'm going to stop there because it can get a little bit too negative and I don't want to because um, a, a real focused non-profit and it really, but it really has to understand its funding model um, can still do regionally and locally a lot of good. So I don't want to be come across as too negative really, John. Absolutely. So, you know, if they know their goal, they can, they can definitely like still achieve it. And, and that's something I want to ask Sally, you know, when it comes to, to goals with nonprofits, uh, when it comes to like marketing, you know, what unique challenges do nonprofits have when, when they're setting their goals and going about achieving them, you know, uh, through their marketing efforts, you know, how, uh, what challenges are like different between a nonprofit and a regular business? Um, you know, I'm thinking, you know, the first thing, of course, is making sure you know what your goals are. And, and that's true whether you're a nonprofit or, or a for-profit or an individual or, or anything. And, uh, you know, in, in that case, it's it's kind of like Morton says, is there a, a structure in place where it's, you know, it's like clear to everybody what your mission is and what you're trying to accomplish at, uh, and where your priorities are? Or is it a situation where, you know, that kind of varies depending on, uh, who your current group of volunteers is and, and uh, you know, what level of, of consistency has, has been passed down. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and how aware are people of what needs to change? Uh, when I moved out to Oakley, I got involved in the local chamber of commerce, mostly to meet people, not so much because I thought it was was going to do a lot for my business. And you know, being the sort of person I am, you know, when I, after the first year, I found myself in charge of the thing, and um, uh, you know, and I quickly came to realize one, this was not a job for a sole proprietor. Uh, because to, to do it properly, I would have been able to spend no time in my own business at all. Uh, but two, there was a whole bunch of stuff that, that somebody should have sat down and dealt with 10 years before, you know, in terms of, all right, we have a, we have a changing environment here for businesses. What actually is the value of a chamber of commerce in the 21st century? What is because there had been several years worth of of seeing that the sort of stuff that they always did, the kinds of events they had as fundraisers, were not working in the same way and attracting the same things, and and nobody had had really addressed that. Um, and you know, it was sort of like, well, by the time we started thinking about this, there was no money left, mm -hmm. uh, and and everything was sort of scrambling and 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 desperate, uh, you know, and we did build them an awesome website that, you know, gave the members some value for money that they hadn't been getting before, but it, there was just a whole bunch of stuff that, that needed to be, uh, to be turned around. And, you know, you may get some advantages as a nonprofit in terms of, uh, marketing. I know that the city helped us with, you know, sending out postcards for things and, and, uh, you know, you may have more access to, uh, 
uh, to, to certain kind of databases or, or, or freedom in, in contacting uh, folks that, that you wouldn't as a, as a for-profit business. Uh, but at the same time, you still have to be very careful about, uh, you know, understanding, uh, you know, who your supporters are. I mean, if, if you, if you're an organization where you know that like, you know, big companies in X or Y industry are where we get 99% of our money, then you, then it's pretty clear. Those are the people you need to appeal to. And, and, you know, with luck, if there's only a handful of those companies, you may have personal connections, you may be able to, to work with that. But if it's just sort of like, uh, well, okay. So like everybody who lives within a, you know, 10 mile radius of here, that's not a cohesive group that you can appeal to. It's, it's like trying to, you know, market your book when you say, but my ideal reader is everybody. No, it's not. It's not. Uh, and, uh, and and you have to figure out if for some reason you're not appealing to the people you used to appeal to, then, uh, you know, do you find a different group of people? Do you find a different way to become appealing? And, and that can be, that can be challenging. No, very good. You know, and, and to follow up with that, you know, to ask Morton, um, when it comes to like reaching goals with nonprofits, you know, how do they find those targeted segments? You know, how do you identify like who you're actually trying to reach when it comes to, to fundraising or, you know, whatever those goals might be? You know, how do you find those people to market to? Well, this is less a web design or content planning conversation than a how do you start a nonprofit question. Uh, but it, it, it it's addresses an important point. I think a lot of, uh, no, not a lot of, I I have encountered several nonprofits that were um, made because people with very, very good intentions saw a need and wanted to fill that need without fully considering what is involved in creating a nonprofit and what, how much effort it takes and how uh, how much of an uphill battle it is to get it to work properly. Uh, the the thing people often forget about nonprofit is nonprofit does not mean free and does not mean we don't earn money. In fact, running a nonprofit usually is incredibly expensive um, because you're not generating income. You're a lot of your time is spent just getting funding from different sources that are not as reliable as you know selling a product um, and. It's very easy for nonprofits to get stuck in any number of different ruts. It could be funding. It could be management of people. It could be just reaching the right audience. And if you haven't in the very beginning of the process decided, here's what we're going to do to make that happen. We need to reach these particular people. And those people need to be able to do this for us. You really can't get anywhere. So if this conversation, what you asked me, if that conversation happens in the discussion over web design, you need to back out because this is not a functioning nonprofit that will get anything done. Now, how do you find that audience? It's the same way you find the audience for any other project. You create a content strategy for your project. You start by saying, who is it that we think we want to reach? And what is it we think we want to tell them? then you define those people, then you go out into the real world and you actually find those people and you talk to them and you say, what is it you would want from us? How would you like this information to be presented to you? That gives you a better understanding of what is actually going on rather than your crazy idea of what the world is like. 
based on those people, you can then build personas and you can then build a content strategy around meeting their needs because your company or your nonprofit will have needs and requirements and goals. Those are irrelevant if you're not meeting the needs, requirements and goals of the audience. So talking to the audience makes the difference. You need to know what they want so you can serve them up and then figure out a way of while serving them what they want, also meeting the goals of the nonprofit or the organization. It's a lot of work. It's not a it's not as simple as saying everyone needs a goat in the backyard because that will make the world better. You have to figure out why do people not want goats in the backyard? How can I answer the questions they have about goats in the backyard? And also, how can I provide them with enough information that they will change their minds, get a goat, put it in the backyard, tell their neighbor to do the same, and fund my nonprofit in the process? Most definitely. Um, you know, here's a, here's a follow-up question to that. Are there examples of nonprofits that, you know, just off the top of the head, that you see doing a good job, you know, uh, going out there and, and marketing themselves? And yes. what are they doing? There are tons. There are great nonprofits all over the place. Uh, in Canada, we have Ladies Learning Code. Mm-hmm. They do an amazing job. Just amazing. They have grown from basically a small grassroots organization of people who just wanted to get more women involved in development to a massive national movement to the point where they now have the support of the government to the point where they're now making like Canada learns to code. Like they've, they've expanded to the point where it's like mind blowing to see how big it got. What they did was they went in and said, we see a need for, uh, or we see a conversation in the community about everyone needs to learn how to code. And we see how that conversation is being kind of ruined by a lack of understanding of what coding is involved, what is involved in coding, uh, supporters of the program that don't know anything about the industry, and an overall problem in the community of lack of diversity. So what can we do to fix that? Well, we can target a specific group that is underrepresented in the community. And the biggest of the groups that are underrepresented in the community is women, because women constitute more than half of the world population, right? So. How, what, what do we do to target women? Well, there are two types of women. There are young women and not young women. So then you can have ladies learning code and girls learning code. And you make some arbitrary line and you say like anyone under this arbitrary line is defined as a girl and over is defined as ladies. And you create two programs, one that's targeted at the younger ones, one that's targeted at the older ones. And then you engage the community, try to find the people who want to teach these classes, who are willing to do it, you get them into a room, you discuss with them how to reach the audience, then you find actual people who would be the target audience and talk to them, and then you build a massive community around it. And you do it in tiny, tiny, tiny steps. You make small individual chapters in every single town. You get them to do small individual workshops just to get it started. It's a massive process that takes many years, but if you do it like that, really consider what you're doing. You stake out your goals, you make small goals, bigger goals, biggest goals. It works. I Nine. totally want to start Crohn's Learn to Code. <laughs> <laughs> you're not in the third stage life yet. Come on now. You're not you're not there. But um yeah, something you reminded me of, like Morton too, uh, you know, there's another organization like you're in the States, uh Black Girls Code that's that's doing like a similar thing. And I actually see them all over social media 
you know, they probably, they do workshops, they do events, they publicize stuff. They're, you know, out there being active, making an actual real difference in people's lives uh-huh. and, you know, building for the future, but, you know, also like, you know, pulling like more people into it by publicizing that. And, and something um, I want to ask the panel too, you know, when it comes to like publicizing, like what you're, you're actually doing, you know, uh, how do do nonprofits like organize that and stay on top of that? You know, uh, I, Jonathan. Yeah, I just a little bit off from what your question is. Hopefully, you won't you give me a little. Oh, that's bit, cool. A little bit of slack. Um, uh, just to respond to what Morton says quickly, and then I, I wanted to give some um, steps about some um, down to earth steps that maybe a nonprofit that's that's got some idea about who its target is, the things we've just discussed. Um, just to comment on what Morton says to start off with is that I, I, I do another podcast and we had um, uh, a successful CEO on and he was talking about, you know, it's all right having this global picture and these big, big plans, but what I've learned is you just every week, every month... Are are we one or two percent, or just just a fraction nearer to our goals? And that's how I run my business: is have we moved on to our goals every month, every six months, and are we any closer? And long as we're moving to our goals, and we can keep on going, we've got the resources to keep on going. It's fine. So uh, it was a bit of eye opener, a little bit to me. On the practical stuff, <clears throat> as long as you've got everything like Sally and um, Morton in place, I think obviously having a mobile responsive website is really important. You know, most most of the people are going to be looking on the site on a tablet, on a phone. Um, I think another thing that most profit non-profits really need to concentrate on, just like a business, which is what Morton was pointing out is really building up your mailing list unfortunately i noticed with a lot of non-profits that constant content has spent a lot of time and energy getting themselves entrenched in the non-profit organization they give heavy discounts they they do a lot of webinars they go out and do a lot of uh, outreach they have a representative, one of their um, employees come to Northern Nevada every year and does live webinars. Um, I don't think it's a great platform myself, so I try and get them off constant contact. And But I get them to get really real about building up a, a substantial mailing list, if it's possible, because that is a direct way that they can contact their supporters. Um, you also get a lot... Um, it's also linked to the amount of content that needs to go on the site, which is linked to our previous conversation and what Morton was pointing out. So having some some structure... And also you've got the social media element. That's one of the benefits, you know, if you can get people... It's normally easier to get volunteers to really help out on the Facebook and the Twitter side on the social media. They like that. And then you have a smaller core of more dedicated individuals that, if, as long as there's some structure, they will help out on the blogging site. Um, but you need a, a team leader that, you know, so... 
the schedule is kept to around the content and also spending more time on the actual content of the newsletter of the outreach is really important so what do you think john i'll try to give some some powerful kind of points that any non-profit should look at no definitely definitely um there is like a lot of outreach that needs to be done building your email list is definitely part of that keeping up you know your blog schedule and helping out with twitter and facebook um anyway uh i know morton has to leave uh morton tell us really quick where to find you um, uh you can find me on the twitter at morton because that's my name that's m-o-r-1-0 and i also blog on my own site at morton.com and on linkedin pulse and on the linkedin learning blog you can find all on the internet Definitely. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I have to leave. Thank you, Morton. Bye. We'll catch you. I think we might as well wrap up the um, podcast part of the show, um, John, and then we go on to, quickly on to the bonus content because we're up on the hour now. What do you think? Yeah, let's yeah let's make it a let's do that. Um, so, I uh, just want to encourage people if you're getting value from this podcast, make sure you go to iTunes, give it a rating, give it a detailed uh, description, like in your rating. Uh, the more reviews that we get, the the more people will find us. It basically, is like SEO for iTunes. Uh, That's great. And um, yeah. folks, um, we'll be back back next saturday um sally um would you like to tell the audience how they can get hold of you uh, certainly i uh, my website is wpfangirl.com and uh, i am at sally getch on twitter and in various other places if you can spell my name you can find me online and john how can people find you well you can find me at my website which is lockdowndesign.com and if you dare, you can follow me on Twitter, lockdown underscore. How do we find you, Jonathan? Um, the, email me um, uh, at jonathan at wp-tonic.com. I'd um, also like to mention, folks, that we, um, we've we now um, opened up WP Tonic for comments. Um, anything, you, um, please go to the sh- this show or any of the other shows you listen to, and there'll be extra bonus content. And leave some comments about how useful you found the show. Any Anything you say, me and John will respond to. Um, we want to build a discussion on the site and be more proactive about that and um the other way to get hold of me folks is twitter uh, at jonathan denwood i'm pretty active there very good and uh tune into the website for the bonus content we'll see you on the flip side mm-hmm.